Well, it is a privilege to be here today, and um, thanks to Gary and Tanya and the group for the great worship this morning. And uh, in my other life, I'm a worship leader, so I really enjoy worshiping with the people of God. So today, uh, you heard the story that I did with the kids, and um, when Bob and I got married 40-some years ago, we put together a family of four immediately, and we had four kids that were all close to being teenagers. Well, they were 9 to 13, so they were close, or they were. And uh, we had a lot of jockeying for first place, just like I talked with the kids. We had a lot of uh, times when, you know, they would fuss over who sat in the front next to the driver's side window, where did they sit at the kitchen table, and the list goes on and on and on. So I have a lot of experience with people wanting a certain place. And uh, for Bob and I, if they couldn't get along and work it out themselves, we did what every parent does. We made a rule. We made a law. And the way we worked it out was we came up with a rotation system. And I know that sounds kind of funny, but it sort of worked for us. So today, I'm talking to you from a text where the disciples are, some of the disciples are jockeying for position. They want a certain place. And so let us read our text today, and I'm going to ask for you to stand. It's found in the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. And if you don't mind, I would appreciate it you would read out loud along with me. So let us read together. Um, Did I send you the wrong scripture? I sent you the wrong scripture. I go, if you have your Bibles, go to 35 to 45. I'm sorry. 35 to 45. And I'm not sure what Uh, text you have there. In fact, Bob, you need to bring me my Bible. So how are we doing this morning? Are we doing okay? Yeah, you can can tell Dan. She really messed up, but uh, thanks for being patient with me. Because it is Mark 10, and it's verses 35 to 45. Tanya, I apologize to you. All right, so I'll read because I don't know which uh, version you have in your hands. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Now, remember, Jesus has just told them that he's going to go to the cross. They're heading to Jerusalem. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be uh, buried, and he's going to rise again. And then after that, he is going to go back to his heavenly father. 
So they're asking for a special seat right next to Jesus. And he replies, you don't know what you're asking. Jesus said, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Now when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, here we go. We're in the middle of this scripture, and those four words, I don't know if they pop out to you, but those four words pop out to me. They grab me. Jesus is saying to them, not so with you. Um, Chris, is it? I'm getting a lot of, is this too close? Sorry, we'll go for another adjustment here this morning. Can you hear it out there? He's saying to them, there's something to be different about you. Not so with you. And then the next word is instead. He's really saying to you and he's saying to me, there's something to be different about us. We call ourselves Christians. We call ourselves Christ followers. There is something to be different about us. Now you'll find passages about this not so with you sprinkled throughout the scriptures, but particularly in the chapters in Matthew that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And here's some of the things that he says to us in these not so with you, which by the way, could be the word instead, or rather, or, but I tell you. So here are these examples. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to justice, judgment. And another one from Matthew, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, 
that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery in his heart. And then from Matthew again, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right, turn to him the other cheek. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. There are many examples of not so with you in our scriptures. Basically what Jesus is saying is, this is the world's normal behavior. This is the culture of the day. But I say to you that here is who you should be or what you should be doing. And so this not so with you, I'll say we just don't arrive there. It is a process. It is a morphing. It is a becoming. And so I would like to suggest to us today that this becoming a not-so-with-you Christian works in three realms of our lives. God works within us, and he begins with our aspirations and our desires, which then moves to our attitudes and then moves to our actions. And that's how God works on us, right? He works from the inside out, not from the outside in. Otherwise, we become like the Pharisees. We're dressed up pretty good. We know what words to say. We know how to look. We know how the posture should be when we're praying. We've got it all together. But inside, one may be really an ugly person, harboring hatred, pride, and contempt. John Orberg has written a book entitled The Life You've Always Wanted to Live. He talks about each of us having what he calls a shadow self. We have a shadow self, that deep part within each one of us that we hide from others and we try to hide from ourselves and sometimes all we can do really is rationalize it, but we're never able to hide that shadow self from God. And that is at the crux of our relationship with him and who we are in him. It is in our shadow self that God needs to begin his work. And that is the part of us where our aspirations and our desires come from. And I want to say to you today that the desire of our hearts is critical. It is absolutely critical. And a desire can be positive or can be negative. And so we have to work on that and we have to think about that and we have to guard against the negative desires. 
One recent mass shooter said that his desire, his aspiration, was to kill more people than anyone else had ever done. That is a negative, negative desire. And our negative desires will send us plummeting down what I call a slippery slope to a place we never would imagine we would be. When our desires are negative, we move down a slippery slope. I know that personally. I woke up one day a long time ago and said to myself, how in the world did I get here? How in the world did I let myself get to this place? James warns us, he says this, after evil desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sinful groan gives birth to death. In 1 John, we read these words, do not love the world or anything in the world, because if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So the question for us today is, what do I aspire to spiritually? What are the desires of my heart? What are the desires that I find within my shadow self? That's an important question because it really tells us who we are and is a predictor of who or what we will become. What is the desire of my heart today? Well, let's turn the corner from those and talk about positive desires. Of course, God's desire is that we would desire him first and foremost. That's why he says to us, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all of these things will be added unto you. John Eldridge has compiled a little book of his writings called The Ransomed Heart. And he writes these words. He's speaking to Christians. This may come as a surprise to you. Christianity is not an invitation to become a moral person. It is not a program for getting us in line or for reforming society. It has a powerful effect upon our lives. But when the transformation comes, that morphing that I spoke about, it is always the after effect of something else, something that happens at the level of our hearts. So at its core, Christianity begins with the invitation to desire. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And in the psalmist, we read these words, sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, 
but my ears you have pierced. I desire to do your will, O my God. And earth has nothing I desire besides you. That reference to his ears being pierced goes back in the Old Testament to the time when the slave at the Jubilee year is given the opportunity to be free. And he now can go free with all his debts paid off. But he loves his master so much that he desires to serve his master for the rest of his life. And as a sign, they take him to the doorpost and they pierce his ear. I desire to do your will, O God, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. How strong is your desire today for him? How important is this desire in your life? Can you say, I'm nothing without you, God, and my heart longs for you, longs for you. I recently read a book, and a man was talking about how he loved his wife. He didn't say long for or love. He said, I ache for you. And I thought, do I ache for God? Do I ache to be like God? Calvin Miller writes into the depths of God, and he compares snorkeling and scuba diving. How many of you have snorkeled? Some of you. How many of you have scuba dived? Ah, a couple of you. Well, there's a big difference, right? Snorkeling, you're up close to the surface. You're underneath the surface, and you have your tube, your air is coming from just above the water. But when you scuba dive, you go deep. You go down and down and down, and you are utterly dependent upon that source of air. And he says that's what hungering for Christ is like. We go deep not to study God and learn about him, but to taste his reality. And ultimately, we define ourselves. So this point of desire becomes a predictor and becomes the definition of who we are and who we are becoming. And then they lead to our attitudes and our actions. Our attitudes are fed by what is inside of us. We really can't fake an attitude. I mean, we try, and sometimes we're pretty good at it, but be sure that if those attitudes within us are not God-honoring, they will be spoken of and they will be revealed. For in Luke we read these words, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. 
A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And in Philippians 2, we remember this wonderful admonition that is written to us to say, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Rather, instead, in humility, value others before yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And you know the scriptures meet right say much about our attitudes and our actions. And we are said that we walk to the spirit because the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. But if you are led by the spirit, that conflict, is erased. In the not-so-with-you Christian life, we will not do whatever we want to do, but will always consider others, and his spirit will lead us, just as his spirit leads us into this becoming, so that our actions speak of Christ, And as it says to us in Ephesians, be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Our desires become our attitudes, become our actions. C.S. Lewis warns us, he says, we are too easily pleased with ourselves. We are too easily pleased with ourselves. And isn't what that what the Pharisees were all about? They lived by the law. You know you can be so right that you're wrong. You can be so right that we become wrong because we have no room left for mercy. And we isolate ourselves, if we're not careful, to just hang around with people that are just like ourselves that we judge to be worthy. And as Jesus said of the Pharisees, they come close with their words, but their hearts are far from me. We do not need to live, as C.S. Lewis warns us, with less than our best. We do not need to live with a constant disappointment in our behavior because we have an unextinguishable hope in Christ Jesus because he has given to us another dimension of our existence, a not-so-with-you existence, no matter what the world is like. No matter what the world is like. 
And where does that strength come from? It comes from the power of the resurrection. As Paul prays, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power for the not-so-with-you life. For the not-so-with-you life. Someone has said, it's not what you are. And we've sung about this today. It's not what you are, nor what you have been, that God sees with his merciful eyes, but what you desire to be. Kierkegaard said it this way, and now, Lord, with your help, I shall be myself. The myself who is a not so with you, Christian. What does a not so with you, Christian, look like? What does it mean to live a life of not so with you? Well, it shows up in all sorts of ways, depending on your life circumstances, depending upon your relationships. But here's just a few ideas. Just as I tried to teach the kids today, you don't have to be first. I don't have to be first. I do not have to have a claim. If I have a really good idea and someone takes it and runs with it, I don't need to get the acclaim for that idea. My idea doesn't have to be chosen. Just think of that. Now I'm going to meddle for just a minute. That's true in the church. What I think the church needs to do or be, or the color of the carpet, or what the music is like, all of it, it doesn't have to be the way I want it. Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, wrote this. He who loves his dream of a community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of that community, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and sincere and sacrificial. Many a church has had such difficulty because of that. I'll stop meddling. We will have a remarkable respect for all of life. We will have a remarkable respect for all of life. We will give the gift of recognizing everyone's personhood, no matter of their capabilities or their station in life, or whether we like them or they like us. We will be purveyors of justice and mercy. We will be forgivers when it makes no sense to anybody else to forgive. And as he said in our scripture today, we will serve 
rather than be served. And I think we sang about some of this today. We will become a light in the darkness. We will become ambassadors for Jesus. We will be a letter written from Jesus to the world. And last but not least, we will become lovers of the unlovable. And particularly, we will love those who do not love us. The not-so-with-you life, modeled by Jesus Christ in all of his fullness and in all of its glory. That's what communion is about. Jesus Christ role-modeled with his disciples in this action and in this act, the not-so-with-you life. I love the way that the message says, again, one of the scriptures that uh, Tanya used today from Romans chapter 5. He says, We can understand someone dying, and this is from the message, for a person worth dying for. And we can understand how someone good and noble could inspire us to selfless sacrifice. But God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use to him whatsoever. And then as we heard today, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as we live the not-so-with-you life, we honor his love given to us. May God bless your hearts today as you've heard the word.